ahead and uh, you got your Bible, go to first, uh, not first John, go to the book of John, book of John. And uh, we're going to look at, uh, to close out our, our series on the great I am, we've, we've seen um, the, the great I am through the book of Genesis, we've seen him presented in the book of Isaiah, Old Testament scenarios, presenting God the, as a whole, God the Father, the great I am. Uh, but then we went to the book of John uh, last Sunday and, uh, and saw Christ himself declaring himself to be the great I am, which, by the way, um, reiterates uh, the understanding of a triune God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And um, we'll see a little bit more of that uh, here in just a moment as well. Uh, but we, see, we saw the great I am in the book of John through Jesus. And, and, and today I want to just kind of piggyback off of that and, um, and go a little bit further in, uh, in the, the great I am of the book of John and looking at Christ um, in, in, the, in the first chapter here mentioned, and then we're, then we're going to skip over and we're going to go to Philippians chapter 2 as well here in a moment. Uh, but we're going to read First John, and uh, we're going to just go. I was going to skip a, a few verses and, and jump, but I'm just going to read straight through uh, verse 1 down to verse number 14 in the first chapter of the book of John. And, uh, and as we look at the book of John once more, what I want to do this morning in looking at the great our, I am, our Savior, um, I want to, to see this and tie together uh, the great I am that we've been looking at already and the perfect Lamb of God that was born for us, which is the time frame of the, the whole purpose. Again, he was not born, don't, don't misunderstand, I'm, I am fully aware uh, of the background of um, the, the whole Christmas celebration, I have taught lessons on the history of Thanksgiving, lessons on the history of Christmas, lessons on the, the history of Easter, not resurrection, but how, how in the world we end up with, with Easter surrounding, uh, the, the, uh, again, another pagan holiday surrounding um, what is actually resurrection celebration, the resurrection of Christ. Um, and why we call it Resurrection Sunday, um, because it's not a focus on Easter. And then just go ahead and hit it now. Um, bunnies don't lay eggs. All right. Um, and, and, and the whole, the whole uh, idea of, of um, uh, delivering of eggs and all that kind of stuff. By the way, don't just understand um, when you have a pagan holiday, you also have things that come along with it. Uh, sometimes those things can be adapted into a, a newfound faith, which is where you get a lot of things you have in the Christmas time scenario. Um, the, the time of the year that we celebrate the birth of Christ does not match the time of year he would have been born. That's just fact, okay? Uh, the fact is, if you want to know the time when Christ would have been born, you have to go to the Middle East. You've got to go over uh, to the area of Bethlehem. You've got to be around and go ask the shepherds, when is the time of lambing? When is the time that you expect the birth uh, of, of, of the lambs 
that you are going to be watching. And by the way, again, uh, the shepherds that were, uh, were told of the birth of Christ, they were told to go and find him. Um, those shepherds, they were not the wise men. It's so, so many stories get so mixed up. Uh, the wise men did not show up to the manger scene. Shepherds did. The wise men didn't show up till much later. And you can also tell some time frames uh, when it comes to uh, the understanding that Herod himself wanted to seek out this man-child, wanted to seek out this individual um, because he wanted to not worship him. He wanted to kill any kind of threat to his throne. He'd heard of this king of the Jews, and so he wanted to kill this possible usurper of his throne. And so um, since the, the uh, wise men did not, and it does not say that there were just three. Matter of fact, if you go, go to uh, the, the understanding of that time frame, if three individuals traveled that distance by themselves, more than likely they were robbed and killed. So the greatest idea, the possibility is they traveled in a caravan, a group, that would have been together, could it have been three of them that went to see the, the, the infant child or, or, or the young one that they had been seeking out? It might have been three. It might have been more than three. What we do know is they brought three gifts. Doesn't mean that each individual had a gift. They just brought three gifts. And it doesn't necessarily mean that they brought three just small little handful of gifts. I mean, it could have been much larger containers of those gifts. I don't know. You don't know. The Bible is not fully clear on every single aspect. We just know that they brought the uh, gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Not going to preach that message, but every single one of those gifts were very specific in defining who he was and what he would do. Uh, but beyond that, they were not there. More than likely, he would have been somewhere, possibly around the age of three, um, because from three years old to a little bit younger. How do we know that? Because Herod was wise enough to understand that. Number oh, by the way, number one, they were not in Bethlehem when when they came and found the young child. Just read your Bible, it's, it's there. Uh, and so he was born in Bethlehem, but they were not in Bethlehem when they came and found the young child. But um, beyond all that, um, Herod decided he was going to, since he could not find where he was, they did not return to tell him where he was, he was just going to go ahead and take it in his own hands, and he was going to make sure that he got him one way or the other. So he had all of the male Jewish children, he had all the children, the, the, the males that were born three years and under. Why? He was making sure that he could hit the gap of what it more than likely was. So he could have been as old as three, he could have been a little bit younger than that, but we do know he was not an infant born in a, uh, in, a, in, in a stable. He was not in a manger when the wise men came, but he was when the shepherds came. And the shepherds were not just any shepherds. Uh, when you do the research, you find out uh, outside of the city of Bethlehem, the shepherds of that area were shepherds that watched the sheep that would be po the possible sheep used for sacrifice, especially hoping to raise that one lamb that would pass all the tests for the yearly sacrifice for the people of Israel. That putting off 
of the guilt of sin until God would send his final perfect spotless lamb for the final sacrifice of all mankind. And God told the shepherds, who by the way were seeing the birth of their lambs that would be inspected one day for the sacrifice of the putting off of sins for God's people, and they are there, they're, they're in the fields. Why are they in the fields with them constantly? Because it was the time of lambing. They were there preparing for the birth of newborn lambs. And God sent his angel and said, hey, uh, don't look at these anymore. Don't, don't watch for these anymore. Your real purpose is you need to go find the final spotless lamb. You're going to find him wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. And that was the shepherds finding the final sacrifice for mankind that had just been born. And by the way, God is not a, uh, we don't serve a God of happenstance and just, oh, hey, well, that happened to work out. <laughs> That's not how God works. He's very particular. He's very specific. And, uh, and when he puts things together, it, it all has a purpose. And, and sometimes we, we like to just float on the shallow surface uh, of things when God is actually showing us a much more um, direct and, and, and deeper understanding of what he was doing and why he did what he did. Everything has a purpose with God. And, uh, and the shepherds that he chose were on purpose uh, the fact that he, Christ was born the way he was born was on purpose. Every single aspect of it uh, is to understand that God had a full design. Nothing was by mistake. Nothing was by happenstance. Everything was according to God's perfect plan. But as a whole, now that I'm off of my, uh, my <clears throat> rant over, okay? But um, as a whole, though, as we're looking at John chapter 1, it, there, there are different ways in which we are presented the birth of Christ. John chapter 1 does not give us a lot of great detail into the birth, such as, as uh, the book of Matthew or in Luke. Uh, they give the, the, the more detail of what we call the, the true Christmas story, the birth of Christ. And, uh, but as a whole, John chapter 1 deals with a, a little bit greater um, aspect of the birth of Christ in the fact that we are dealing with um, the descriptive um, aspect, you might say, of, of how God himself was robed in flesh for mankind. And, and so all of this, and I know I, I got off talking about the December and the t not being the time frame and everything, but as a whole, um, everything and most, th I should say, most things that we do uh, this time of the year in recognizing the birth of Christ, again, most of these things are designed to give us a picture of uh, who he was and what he came to do and what he did, what it brought to us, even down to like, the evergreen trees being everlasting life and all, all those different things. But we can't miss the aspect of what it is that the book of John presents to us in the very first verse of the very first chapter as we go through these verses. Let me just read verse 1 down to verse number 14. 
And, and let's look at, at what John, through the leading of the Holy Spirit, presents to us concerning Christ, our Savior. It says in verse number one, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shineth in darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not. Now, it's going to go into talking about John here, but I want to read all of it but so it all continues to make sense. It says, There was a man sent from God whose name was John. The same came for a witness, to bear witness of the light, that all men through him might believe. Now, it's not saying believing in John. It's saying that John brought the message of truth that was to come, that the one that they have been waiting on is at hand. Prepare ye the way of the Lord, the voice of the one crying in the wilderness. Okay, all of these things depicting John being the forerunner, the one to basically sound the trumpet and prepare the way for the one who is to come. And the Bible is very clear about that. Um, in verse number 7 where it talked about him coming to be a witness, but verse number 8, still referring to John, it says, He was not that light, with a capital L. So we're talking about the light of the world being the Son of God. He is, John was not the one. By the way, many people asked him because he was so dynamic and people, people wanted to follow him and people, they, they, just, they were drawn to him and several people would ask him, art thou the one? And he kept telling them, it's not me, it's not me, it's not me. He even says, I'm unworthy to, un- to even unlatch the shoelaces. I, 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 I can't even get close to being worthy as he who is to come. It is not me. And so John is very clear that he is not the true light. The Bible here is very clear that he was not that light, but was sent to bear witness of that light. That was the true light. So what, what, so what light is it talking about? The true light, which lighteth every man that cometh into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made by him, and the world knew him not. Now it's going back. It's now talking about the true light. John is not the true light, but he has come to bear witness of the one true light. Who is that true light? Well, that true light is the one uh, who, who, who made the worlds, uh, and the world knew him not. He was in the world. The world knew him not. Verse number 11, he came unto his own, and his own received him not. This is talking about Jesus, the true light. He came unto his own. Who? The Jewish people. He came unto his own, and his own received him not. Uh, they, in the end, rejected him. Does it mean that God has rejected the Jew? No. But since they rejected him, he has, by the way, he has sent the message to those who are not of the, the lineage and the, the bloodline family, which would mean that he not only came for the Jew, but he also came for the Gentile. Thank the Lord for that. Because without Christ being the, the, the savior of the Jew and the Gentile, we would all have a problem. Unless you are full-blooded Jew, you would be in a very serious pickle right now if Christ did not die, did not come, born, and, and die for also the Gentile. 
Those of us that are, that are not of a direct lineage of, of uh, Israel and the, and the Jewish people, uh, if it wasn't for the fact that Christ was not come just for the Jew, which, by the way, many of them, uh, even in this time, wanted to claim he is, he is ours, he's, he's for us, he's of us, he's only for us. And by the way, even Peter had a problem with it when, when the Lord was trying to tell him to go uh, and, and to speak to Cornelius and, and to speak with those of the Gentiles. And Peter had a real problem with it, and God told him, call not, not thou unclean that which I have called clean. When I have sent you uh, to someone, when I tell you they, they are to hear the truth uh, of the gospel, they are to hear um, of me, the Savior, you are to go even if they are not of the Jewish people. Thank the Lord that Peter was willing to obey the voice of the Lord to go to the Gentile. Thank the Lord that Paul was willing to obey a Jew of the Jew, a, a Pharisee of Pharisees, someone who could have easily said, oh, no, only the Jew is important. By the way, Paul is the one that over and again, over and again said to the Jew first, but also to the Greek, also to the Gentile. I thank the Lord that we don't have a Savior that put us all as Gentiles on the outside of hope. He brought us into the same hope of having Christ as our Savior. But he goes in here and it, it, it says that um, the world was made by him. The world knew him not. He came unto his own. His own received him not. But, as, and, but here it is. But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name, which were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Which, by the way, again, just reiterating the fact that the second birth is not a birth that you can earn or do of your own self and your own will. It is a birth that is of God and God's way, God's plan. It is salvation through Jesus Christ, plus nothing, minus nothing. And that right there is another verse uh, from God himself through John, letting us know that it is only through Christ, born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And here is verse number 14, very uh, fantastic verse. If you take verse number 1 and verse uh, um, number 2, um, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. Then go to verse number 14. And the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And that is what we celebrate uh, this time of the year, which should not be only this time of the year, but that is what we celebrate at this time, is the acknowledgement that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And I want to look at that as we tie these things together to present to us the personal aspect of the great I Am robed in flesh. I want to look at three things this morning. The two natures we see of Christ and then the two estates, the two 
um, uh, you might say there's two statuses you see within the, the life of Christ and then understanding the purpose of all of that for us today. Let me pray and then we're going to uh, jump into these thoughts. Heavenly Father, again, we thank you this morning for allowing us to be able to be here, Lord, this, uh, this Christmas Eve time frame when, uh, Lord, the, the focus, though the world puts commercialism and, and sales and a whole bunch of other things above the true priority of this time frame, Lord, would you help us not to allow the reinventing of this time to overshadow its true purpose that we acknowledge, we see, we celebrate the fact that our God, the great I am, was willing to be humbled enough to be robed in flesh for the purpose of dying for our sins. Would you help us to see this very personal aspect of this truth this morning as we examine these passages of Scripture that you've given for us? ask you to do what only you can. Help us to see, understand, and Lord, may we accept it and put these truths deep within our hearts today. We ask it all in Christ's name. Amen. If you would go with me out of... John chapter 1, and let's go over to Philippians chapter 2. John chapter 1 and Philippians chapter 2 um, have a lot of good parallels to them. But in Philippians chapter 2, we begin to see uh, even more take place that show us the nature, or should say the, the two natures found within Christ, and then also uh, the, the two estates that he is found in, and, and then understanding that purpose. Look with me, if you would, in verse number 5 down to verse number 11. Now, the, these thoughts should go um, fairly quickly, so y'all run with me uh, through it quickly, and I believe it will all tie together uh, easily for you. But uh, looking in, in verse number 5 of Philippians chapter 2 down to verse number 11, the Bible says, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father." In these verses, let me, let me just uh, give you verse 6 and verse number 7 here. We see two divine natures, I shouldn't say two, two natures in Christ during the time frame of him being robed in flesh. You see, first of all, a divine nature. Verse number 6 points that out. The great I am never stopped being the great I am even robed in flesh. 
says, who, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. Now, there's a lot of argument over um, that verse and the way it's, it's stated. But um, it, it's not Jesus thinking that he will be God. He already is. It's not Jesus thinking, well, you know, uh, if anybody can be equal with God the Father, it's me. Well, no, because that's exactly what Satan did, and he had no right to be equal. Uh, he was not God himself. He was created being of God, and, uh, but he was not God. Jesus, on the other hand, always was God. Uh, I, I remind you, in John, 1, in John John 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was not only with him, he was already. You can go all the way to Genesis 1, 1, in the beginning, uh, what, let, me, let, me, let me go back over there real quick. Y'all, y'all just stay where you're at right there. But in Genesis 1, I, I, the Bible talks about not only in the beginning, uh, there, there being the, the, the starting of all things here, but um, in, in fact, in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. But uh, as, as you go down uh, further and you talk about and you look at where not only he created the heaven and the earth, and it said in the beginning, God, but the Bible says that, the Word was with God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was, was with God, and the Word was God, which means that when and you have the in Genesis 1-1, in the beginning, uh, God created the heaven and the earth. Well, you have to say that that is God, uh, not just singular, but it is God, plural. Plural, not in multiple gods, but plural in the triune God that he is. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Uh, later on, when it talks about um, uh, when, when God uh, spake and, and to, to form man, uh, he said, let us make man in our own image after our own likeness. Well, there's plural. You can't get away from the fact that he's not just talking to him himself in the fact of talking as I would talk to myself uh, or I would say, I want to make man in my own image. I want to make this in my own likeness. No, he said our. Why? Because God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit were all together, three in one, already in existence as the great I am. We just see the three different aspects of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit all throughout Scripture. Uh, different, uh, 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 if you want to put it this way, uh, different purposes and different jobs, but at the same time, all still one. Say, fully explain that. I can't because my puny mind can't comprehend it, and neither can yours. We can't fully comprehend, and that's why, of course, you go back to the whole thing that, that we get blamed uh, as, as Christians, and all, we get blamed for being um, uh, cop-outs in that sense because that's when we say, well, that's what you call faith. It's not a cop-out. Faith is a willful act of choosing to place my trust in that which I may not be able to see, I may not be able to fully understand, but which is so much higher and greater than I am. And there is no one greater and higher and better than God himself. He is the great I am. He is far beyond me. His ways are beyond my ways. His thoughts above my thoughts and beyond my thoughts. And therefore, if I'm going to place faith in anything, it's going to be faith in someone who is beyond me so far that I can't even fully comprehend him. If I could comprehend him and bring him down to my level, then what kind of faith would I want to place in that? If he's no better than I am, I would be no better off for having faith in him. 
But I trust in a holy God who is far beyond me, who is God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And here, talking of Jesus, uh, let this mind be in you, which is also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. It's not saying that we can see and say, hey, I'm going I'm to be like Christ. I'm gonna, I don't think it's robbery to be equal with God. That's not the point. It's describing when Christ came that he thought it not robbery. He was uh, in the flesh, though at the same time, never gave up his divine nature fully. He was still holy God. Uh, uh, go with me very quickly. I, I, I got to move very fast. But uh, go with me to Colossians 1. It's just a couple of pages over for you. But Colossians 1, I, I would re just read these off, but it'd be really good for you to see them, all right? Um, but dealing with his divine nature, how, are, you, are you sure that, that he still had his divine nature even as uh, Christ robed in flesh? Well, yes, I am. There's only a couple of passages I'm going to take you to, but there's several others we could go to as well. But Colossians 1, uh, 12 through 17, it says, um, giving thanks unto the Father, which hath made us meet to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light, who hath delivered us from the power of darkness, and hath translated us into the kingdom of his dear Son, in whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins, who is, okay, now who are we talking about? The Son of God, okay? The Son of God, who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature that image of the invisible god that is hey, no man hath seen god and lived no man has seen the father but many have seen the son and he is uh, the image the visible image of the invisible god uh, again, now, now listen, I understand we have not seen him, which is why uh, in Bible, even Christ himself uh, talked about those who had seen, I gotta stay here, those who had seen him um, and, and talked about the fact that, um, you know, y'all have seen and believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. That's us. We have not seen him with our eyes, but we've seen him as we walk through the pages of Scripture. I have not heard him directly with my ears, but I have heard that still small voice that directs me in all things godly and right and holy for my life. We have a Savior that we can believe in and we can trust in, though we have not seen with our eyes. But there's, if there is one of the Godhead that man has actually seen, it is Jesus Christ who was robed in flesh, who walked among men. And in that walking among men, uh, he was the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature. It goes on to say in verse number 16, for by him were all things created. There it is again, saying that Jesus was there at creation. That everything created that were in heaven, that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created by him and for him. And he is before all things and by him all things Consist, by the way, even today, nothing exists and nothing consists without Christ allowing it to happen. 
When he was robed in flesh, he did not stop being the great I am. When he died, was buried, rose again, and ascended, he did not stop being the great I am. He always was, he always is, and always will be the I am. But Christ, the I am, robed in flesh, in his divine nature, I'm not going to take you there for a second time, but you go to Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1 through 4, and again, you'll see uh, the, the revealing of his divine nature, even though he was robed in flesh. But it's not just the divine nature that he had as he walked this earth, but he was also um, surrounded by a human nature. That's the whole flesh part. However, we're not gonna, I'm not going to get ahead of myself. I've got to be careful. Though he was robed in flesh, and though he felt the pain that flesh feels, he was not tainted with the sin that men have. His divine nature, coupled with his human nature, did not technically give him a fleshly, sinful nature. He was robed in flesh in human form, but he was still holy God, which is why, by the way, when people say, well, who was Jesus' daddy? It wasn't Joseph. Matter of fact, I'm not going to go there, but uh, you read the story, and we might actually at the very, very end see a little bit, but when you read the story uh, given of the birth of Christ, the, I should say not the story, the account given of the birth of Christ, uh, you find that it, it ends in, in uh, I believe in Matthew, it ends where it talks very specifically of how Joseph knew not his wife until she had conceived Christ. Why? There had to be no question that Christ was the seed of God, untainted by man. He was robed in flesh, that was the human nature side, but he was still, that flesh contained Almighty God, that was his divinity. I like the way, uh, and by the way, over over in um, uh, there in Ephesians 2, verse number 7, it says, uh, though, verse number 6, we saw, who being in the form of God thought it not robbery to be equal with God, okay? There is his divine nature. It, by the way, it would not have been a sin. It would have not have been wrong. He had every right to come to this earth and retain every bit of his divinity and every bit of his glory. He could have deceived. Descended from the clouds, he could have come. Oh, by the way, it sounds familiar like one day he might do that very thing. But he could have done what we know is coming in the future. He could have done that from the very beginning and had every right to come as, as a prevailing, glorified uh, um, uh, God in, in, in flesh and to come as a king with pomp and circumstance and, and the trumpet sounding. He had every right to come as God in the flesh. But what'd he do? Verse number seven, six represents and presents his true divinity that he had every right to display in its grandeur and all its glory. 
Then verse number 7 comes in, but made himself of no reputation. This is the humanity side that he took upon him. Made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. It's funny how being made in the, took, take upon the form of a servant is equal to the understanding of being made in the likeness of men. Just showing how much lower we are in the status pool in comparison to holy God. He had every right to come in all his glory. But he took upon him the form of a servant. He made himself of no reputation. He was made in the likeness of men. He was robed in flesh. And at that, not just robed in flesh, but he was born at, in the lowest low of low ways that even men of that day could be born. Not even a quality place to lay his head. Not even quality clothes to wrap him with. Swaddling clothes. You do know what swaddling clothes are, right? That is like, that is the, it'd be the leftover grave clothes. It'd be whatever they had that would have been used when a person dies to wrap them up and, and put spices and all that kind of stuff when, when an individual dies. Who in their right mind is going to want to be born and wrapped in death clothes? It'd kind of be, in, in, in today's idea, it'd, uh, it'd be like taking your baby and the first thing you do is you, 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 you find a coffin and all that kind of stuff and all the different things that, that are reminiscent of death to us and you wrap your baby in it and you lay your baby in a coffin for a crib. I mean, who wants to do that? But Christ was born not at home, not around a whole bunch of family, not with people oohing and all and over him a whole bunch, but, but he was born in a lowly stable. He was placed in a cattle trough, a manger, and he had shepherds. Shepherds. Nobody. I mean, <laughs> no kings, no crowns. No special things to, to supply and, 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 and praise. And, oh, he's here. He's here. No, matter of fact, pretty much everybody. Bethlehem was packed out with people. And almost nobody knew he was even there. And almost no one cared. He was God robed in flesh. And here's how Matthew Henry, and I'm going to move very quick with the last little bit, but here's how Matthew Henry put it. Herein, when talking about the human nature, herein he emptied himself, divested himself of the honors and glories of the upper world and of his former appearance to clothe himself with the rags of human nature. In this, and if you're back in Philippians chapter 2, in verse number 8, now we start seeing the two estates. I just give this to you quickly and we'll wrap it up. But the two estates of Christ. Verse number 8 says, And being found in fashion as a man, the Word became flesh. 
being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. The first estate you see, the first uh, status of his life you see, you see him choosing to be humbled. He was humbled in birth. He was humbled in death. By the way, keep in mind, he never stopped being the great I am. Why does it say that he became obedient unto death? He's the one who created everything. Death was nothing to fear for for him from the very beginning. Death could have no hold. He commanded death. Death only existed because of his allowance as a punishment of sin. Death had no hold on him. He is the great I am. He's robed in flesh, but he's the great I am. At any given moment, he could say, no. Ain't happening. No. Not going to die. Death, you have no hold. You have no say. You can't keep your mouth shut. You can't even speak. At any given moment, at any time, he had every right to take full control and say, Death, you have no place. I'm not putting myself underneath your control. Done. Because he was still Almighty God. The Bible says he became obedient unto death. Which means he had to Lower himself in humility. And though he was almighty God, he placed himself underneath the control of death for a short period of time. Thus, God, robed in flesh, was able to die being obedient to death. He did not have to. Even though he was robed in flesh, he was still not bound to death. He had to put himself in humility to lower himself so that death could take hold. So he humbled himself. You see, his, hum- his state of humility. But through all of his obedience to the plan of the Father... And even obedient to death, even the death of the cross, which, by the way, was an embarrassing, humiliating death. Bible says in verse number nine, wherefore God also hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He is King of kings. He is Lord of lords. And by the way, one day every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess. But through his willingness to humble himself, the Father said, You humble yourself for the purpose of the cross. And I will exalt the Lamb, the great I Am. 
The two estates, humility in birth and in death, but exaltation by the Father in resurrection unto life, seated at the right hand of the Father, the Savior of all the world. And as he said, if I, if I be lifted up, not just in the cross, but if I, if I be lifted up in your everyday life, and in your everyday witness, and in your everyday uh, aspect of being a child of God, if you will lift up the Savior and exalt Him as the Father has exalted Him, He said, I will draw all men unto me. If the drawing is getting weaker and weaker, it might be because the lifting up is getting less and less. And here's the last of it. I gotta, gotta be done. It's not even 12 o'clock yet. We're good. I'm picking. I know. We started at 10. I get it. But here's the last. The two natures, divine God, yet robed in human nature of flesh. Not affected by and tainted by the sins of the flesh, but born that he might die to become humble unto death, yet exalted by the Father. And then the understanding of the whole purpose. Here it is, okay? And naturally, we know the ultimate purpose of Christ's birth as God robed in flesh was for the redemption of mankind. Without Christ, there would be no hope of salvation. But the purpose of his perfectly joined natures and his distinctly unique uh, estates that he, that he took on to himself and the Father gave as well in exaltation all of that goes beyond just the universal mindset of he, he died for the salvation of mankind. It goes even far beyond that to magnify the personal aspect of the great I am walking amongst men. He's 100% man so that he could die for me. He's 100% God so he could live again for me. He's humbled so as to be obedient unto death for me. He's exalted to be victorious over death in the grave for me and for you. All of this and all that we are given and shown uh, through, through the account of the birth of Christ is to show us that the great I am Yes, he was born to die for all of men, but he was born to be personal for each and every individual who will call upon him, who will accept him, who will let him be their personal Savior. Everything we are told in the Bible about the Word becoming flesh is to illuminate that personal aspect of the great I Am choosing, now get this, to robe Himself in flesh just so He could suffer for my sin, to take my place in penalty, offer me His eternal forgiveness, and upon accepting His salvation, promise to never leave me nor forsake me. Every bit of it is to show us that he's not an impersonal God, but he's willing to, to set aside all that he had the right to be on this earth. He had the right to come and immediately put his foot down and say, all of this is mine. I created it all. I am God. 
He had every right to come in all his glory, but he humbled himself, was robed in flesh at the lowest of lowest states in life. And, and he grew and he worked and, and, and he ministered unto people. He gave of himself. He gave of himself. He gave of himself until finally he gave himself just for us. And every bit of it is the personal aspect of it's not just that he died for the whole world he died for me he wasn't just born for the whole world and the universal understanding of everybody is loved by God yes it is true to a degree but it goes much deeper the great I am robed himself in flesh took upon him the form of a servant he didn't have to it wasn't his job to do he wasn't commanded to do it he chose willfully to humble himself be a servant live a life endure the pains of life and yet go through the most agonizing pain that I should have suffered and he did every single bit of it not just to say I did it for all the world he did every single bit of it so that he could say I did this for you it's personal now did he die for the whole world yes for God so loved the world whole world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever whole world whosoever personal individual whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved he died for the whole world but when it comes to salvation it is personal when it comes to fellowship it is personal when it comes to knowing the great I am who is robed in flesh it's personal Hebrews 4 14 through 16 tells us this Seeing then that we have a great high priest that is passed into the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession. For we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin." Some people just stop and they say they try to make that sound like, well, he knows all of your pains. He knows all of your sorrows. He, he knows what it feels like to be hurting like you're hurting. And may I say that's not wrong. He does. He knows what it's like to go through painful life. He knows what it's like to deal with this flesh. You stub your toe, it hurts. I guarantee you he stubbed his toe, it hurt. He understood what it was to have loss. He understood what it was to have loved ones die. He understood what it was to have people forsake him. He understood what it was to have people talk bad about him. He understood what it was to have people try to turn other people against him. He understood all those aspects of things we face in life. All the pains, all the hurts, all the sorrows. He understands all of that. That is true. But may I say what this passage in Hebrews 4 really focuses on he understands the feelings of our infirmities. It's dealing with sin and the curse of sin on this life. It says he understands and was tempted in all points like as we. He knew what it was to face 
temptation. When people say, well, you just don't understand how hard it is to fight against the temptation. The temptation is just too strong. God knows exactly what it's like. Christ himself knows exactly what it's like to go through the greatest of the greatest temptations, uh, hungry and, and, and honestly wanting something to eat and being tempted that he had the power to turn stones into bread and tempted by Satan to do so for his own personal selfish gain. And he quoted scripture back to him. Told Satan exactly what it was supposed to be and what's not supposed to be. Tempted to cast himself down. Throw himself up and let the angels catch him and all. Just to prove he was, he didn't have to prove he was God. He knew he was God. Tempted, I'll give you everything you see. By the way, Satan tempted him with the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Lust of the flesh, the food. Pride of life, cast, you know, cast yourself down and prove. prove. You know, angels are going to come. Show how great you are. Uh, and then lust of the eyes. I'll give you everything if you just bow down and worship me. Christ in this flesh knew what it was to be tempted by the lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and pride of life, yet without sin. You say, I just don't, nobody understands how difficult it is in my life to fight some of these things. Jesus does. And yet he faced it and did not give in. So he says that he is a personal savior and he is there personally. It says, let us therefore come boldly under the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Why? He's not an impersonal God. He is a personal Savior, who already understands what it is to face what you're facing, and he already knows how to be victorious, and he can help you with it. He's personal. I end with this. I need to end with this right now. Matthew 1, 22 and 23 says this. Now all this was done that it might be fulfilled which was spoken of the Lord by the prophet, saying, Behold, a virgin shall be with child and shall bring forth a son and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which being interpreted is God with us. What's more personal than having God with you? That's what the word became flesh is all about. Yes, he died for the whole world, but he died for you. Uh, yes, he, he will save any, the whole, any of the whole world that come to him, but he desires to hear from you personally. Yes, he walks with and talks with anyone in the whole world, but he wants to walk and talk personally with you. The great I am, robed in flesh, that he might be a personal savior and a personal God to walk with every day. Heavenly Father, we thank you.